Hello and welcome, everyone, back to another wonderful episode of the Coalescence Publishing Podcast. I know it's been a little bit, again, <laughs> uh, we had some technical difficulties trying to upload our last episode that we wanted to do before we went to the MetroThamCon, or as we've recently learned, it's called Metrotham. Um but those should be fixed. For some reason, the recording kept getting flagged for copyright reasons. And then the file got corrupted. So that was a whole mess. But we should be good. Um, with me today is going to be, of course, my awesome co-host, Wyatt Sutherland. And we have a very special guest with us. The newest member of Coalescence Publishing. Matthew. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> I guess I should have said your name, Matthew. <laughs> oh, it's all good. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself, Matthew. Like, why are you here on a podcast today? Um, tell us just a little bit about you. Yeah, so uh, my name is Matthew Salinas. I am a fiction writer from Aurora, Illinois. I'm on this podcast today because uh, Coalescence Publishing has been gracious enough to work with me in publishing some of my uh, stories that I'm trying to get out there. Currently, right now, we are finishing up on getting out my debut novel. It'll be called What Sleeps in Wollenmark. It's going to be a uh, horror, thriller-esque type novel, and it should be coming out relatively soon. I'm incredibly excited about it, and everything has just been uh, very... Uh, very interesting to say the least. I mean, I'm, I'm traditionally used to doing more of like the self publishing route. So seeing everything go through this Avenue has been rather enlightening, but also at the same time, I'd say it's way better than I could have imagined. Yeah. How so? Well, I mean, for one, I, uh, I am used to at least in the self publishing aspect relying heavily on my wife she has a uh, english degree and so she is kind of usually the editor and takes the brunt of going through and you know looking over things and whatnot so having the resources of you know having an actual team of editors to look through and go through and kind of commit to helping me i guess essentially make the story as best and fluid as humanly possible has been great and then also another big aspect has been being able to actually get what I would consider to be, you know, decent cover art as opposed to, uh, you know, the Amazon cover arts that are frequently out there that everybody can use in their uh, Kindle publishing. Mm -hmm. I gotcha. So you're basically coming from a self-publishing environment to, I, I would say... We're not really your traditional publishers, but more hybrid based on the market, just based on what we do compared to both aspects. Um, Technical term small press. I think that's that's the term that Chris uh, used. Uh, update for everybody: We actually did a panel at Metrotham Con, and we've been trying to post a small clip from that panel. Uh, and we're, we're actually still hoping to get that panel up because it's just a really great moment for the studio. But, um, yeah, we're in that, in that panel, the term that 
Chris used, uh, which I think is is pretty accurate, is small press. It's a right, yeah. And I, I tell you, man, um, it's been awesome working with your stuff in particular, Matthew. You know, everyone's stuff is great, um, but what you're bringing since it's a new path we're starting to take with coalescence um kind of focusing a little bit more on that horror itself but not only the horror but the thriller-esque aspect of it um i really enjoyed working with you on what sleeps in wall and lark i think it's it has a touch of 1980s horror to it, yeah. from what I've read. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I try to kind of send it in more of a uh, less than idyllic 90s-esque atmosphere of kind of what I was used to growing up in, and sort of like a small, rural, not quite suburban, but almost there type town. In the kind of place that uh, you can get kind of creepy vibes of just by driving through, even though it only takes you about 10 minutes to drive through the entirety of the town. Dude, we have places like that all over the place here in Tennessee. Um, we have, we, we call them haulers down here for those of you not in the South, <laughs> but we have a hauler here. And I used to have a buddy, I would go with him whenever he would do his paper routes at night. And man, you talking about some creepy back roads. Like there, there wouldn't be anything wrong with it. No ghosts or anything, but just looking at it in the dead of night, you know, there's going to be a demon pop out and grab your soul. <laughs> well, yeah, see, that was kind of a slightly similar experience for me. Cause growing up, I lived in a, a pretty small subdivision and when you got to the end of it, the road and sidewalks literally just ended and there were cornfields. And then a little bit further down, there's actual woods. Uh-uh. And so a lot of times as kids, we would just like run out and play in like the corn and the woods and stuff and got lost a few times and other things like that. One time we found a guy living out there in a tent. Hmm. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting place. <laughs> What do you think your most unique or scariest experience has been like in that type of environment? Definitely getting lost because when you go out into a cornfield and it's getting towards like dusk, you know, you still got at least some type of aspect of where you're at least headed in a general direction, you know, with the whole sun rises in the east, sets in the west. But as soon as the sun goes down and you're still out there and then now you're in the dark, and the corn is too tall for you to see. You're kind of just like, I remember distinctly being out there with two buddies one time. And I think we were probably stuck for maybe like a solid three hours. Ugh. Yeah. And we were, we were still young enough to the point too, where we also didn't have like cell phones or anything. So we were just like, well, we've just got to like keep traversing through this cornfield to eventually get back or, you know, die trying. Dude. Before cell phones, I don't feel nearly as old now. Um, <laughs> that's so creepy. Cornfields have always creeped me out, man. I I've never went to a corn maze, but I watched Children of the Corn when I was younger, and that just did it for me right there. Mm. 
just nope. Mm-mm. <laughs> so, Matthew, we're going to ask you a couple questions here. You know, just kind of, we want to know about you, you know. Yeah. What sleeps in Walden Lark? You know, yeah, that's that's your debut novel. You know, nothing too important, but um, <laughs> but we don't want to get too many spoilers out. So, what what made you realize that you wanted to be a writer? Like, what made you want to do your first book? Honestly, I would have to probably go all the way back to like fifth grade. So maybe I was like ten years old. And our, it was the first time a teacher had even, ever given a creative writing assignment. And I thought, all right, we'll see where this goes. And the next thing, you know, I turned in about a 25-page, poorly stapled-together packet of papers. And I was like, here you go. I wrote this story. I think it's great. And I'm sure it was terrible. I mean, I was fifth grade. I, I had a horrible grasp of grammar and everything like mm-hmm. that. So... <laughs> But the teacher was nice enough to be like, you know, here are some books. Here are some recommendations of like fantasy authors and other things. You know, if it's something that, you know, you seem to have a natural knack for an interest in, you know, keep at it. And so for I think that was kind of the beginning of, I guess, that fire being lit. And then later down the road, uh, I believe it was freshman year of high school. The high school I went to had a uh, literary magazine and I was like, yes, I want to write for that. And I did. And my English teacher, similar type of idea where she was like, you know, keep going at it, keep going at it. But she also, I'll never forget. She was like, you know, if you work really hard at it, maybe one day in school, we'll be teaching Selena Sari in literature. And I was just like, I've never heard anybody use my name as an adjective before. Yes. (laughs) and then yeah and then the i think two years later down the line and it was either junior or senior year i had my first actual creative writing class and i'll never forget for whatever reason mrs conway was just like a huge fan of my work and she was like just keep keep doing it keep doing it and i was like all right I'm, i'm gonna keep going at this as best as i can and I figured, you know, as time progresses, as I both read more and write more, it's kind of like getting more tools to put in my tool belt or, you know, whatever metaphor or cliche you kind of want to use for that. And it eventually got to the point where I felt comfortable enough with trying to make a whole cohesive narrative. And yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of the story of how I got to where I am now teachers and stuff like that because i feel like that was honestly a big stumbling block for me um, early on like growing up I, I always knew that i had like this really active imagination and not just that it was active but like i wanted to write it down i wanted people to know the kind of the stories that i was coming up with in my head but for me support was kind of hard to come by like we were uh growing up lower working class or uh, lower middle class so like we had food on the table and stuff like that but money was always a concern uh like regardless of that we we didn't really know how far we could stretch things out a lot of times growing up and and 
were growing up like that colored a lot of my aspirations um, up until recently, where I was I was always wondering, like, I want to do this. I want to write. I want to tell stories. Um, but everyone around me was telling me, like, that that that's not going to work. Artists don't make money. The starving artist that that was kind of the archetype that got put in my head. I never really had uh, people saying, Hey, you're good. I mean, I, I had some people that I would write like short stories for and stuff. And, and they always said that it was good, but it was never like an authority figure, if that makes sense. It was always like peers, but it was never like a teacher who's, who's like actually investing in uh, me as a growing person saying you can do this like you you can actually take this and and turn it into something like a life um i was very much like pressured to abandon writing and and do something a little bit more uh like quote unquote a real job you know what i mean like um and so that's so important like if there's any teachers in the audience or parents um listen to what matt matthew is talking about right like that these teachers who were supportive of him has led him to get to the point where you are now yeah no i'm i'm eternally grateful for that and yeah i mean on the flip side anytime i ever post or talk about anything with writing it seems within a matter of minutes my mom will call me up and be like but but you're not quitting your day job right Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, yes, no, I, I, I'm still working my day job. I know. I've, and she's like, good. Cause you know, you got like bills to pay and stuff. And you know, if you're ever going to have grandkids for me and I'm just like, all right, mom. All right. Yeah. No, now just putting this down there, you, you know, we're going to check this video here in five years. Now when you're, when you're a millionaire living on the coalescence mansion Island. Um, yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll come back to that statement. Mm-hmm. But I I agree. Having an authoritarian, well, a figure of authority, you know, support you and tell you, hey, you have something here. Take it, run with it. That's a very important. Um, that's how a lot of writers start out, you know, with pursuing their dreams because. If you have a writer who loves to write, like Matthew, you know, let's say back when you were in fifth grade, your teacher ripped up your piece of paper and told you, this sucks. You know, I'm sure that would probably have shaped your writing, you know, motivation or what have you for the rest of your life, probably, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't even have to be that extreme. Like, like, the, of course, that would be terrible. Like that, that would just be such a huge, like, um, terrible thing for a teacher to do. But um, even like in my case, where it was never really anybody saying like my stuff is bad or anything like that. Um, anytime I had an assignment, like you're talking about, like a creative assignment, a creative writing assignment or something, um, it was like receptive received well but the gen- it was like a general opinion that uh it's just not something that you do to live you know what i mean like it, it's just not you don't write you don't paint you don't do any art 
uh, well, to make a living. And that that's kind of what I'm talking about, where it's like, um, and yeah, I mean, like, we all have day jobs. It's just a fact of life. You just got to do what you've got to do. But uh, I, I think a lot of writers might get might get stopped like I did somewhere along the road where in, they say, okay, everybody's telling me I can't make a living doing this. Then I'm going to do something that I can make a living out of. And, and especially for me, it was all about like, I was terrified of living in poverty. Like everyone, everyone, my mom, my parents, my teachers, they all reinforced like this fear of got to get a job. You've got to do what you got to do to get money. Um, I ended up joining the military. I was in the military for a little while and it was just this whole big episode of life where I was just doing everything that I could to make sure that I can not go broke. And instead of following my dreams of, of writing and telling stories and yeah, I mean that, that's kind of what I'm talking about. It's like, it's not even like an extreme case of like people telling you that you're bad but just the general opinion towards the arts as um, not real jobs. Well, another thing to add on to that, Wyatt, um, you know, before we even started, you know, the studio here, um, some of us wanted to write books and all that, but there's a lot of talk about, oh, you'll never be a successful author. It, you know, you have to be lucky to be successful. And it really makes you sit back and think, well, what does success mean? For a lot of people, that means selling a thousand books. You know, a thousand copies of your book makes you a successful writer. I don't, I don't agree with that. To me, you know, like financially speaking, sure, you know, I, you know, we all want to make money off of our books, but there's more to success than just the financial aspect of it. And if I can write a book that keeps someone entertained rather than doing drugs, or if I can write a book that makes someone smile while they read it, or just sit back and be like, wow, that was a pretty damn good book, you know? Yeah, yeah just yeah. something. To me, I I have become successful at that point. Maybe not financially, you know, I'm not <laughs> the next millionaire yet, but, you know, there's more to you success than just money. And that's why yeah, I, I'm of the opinion that, you know, being one of the owners of the studio, of course, I want you all to make money. That's my number one goal for you guys. But I also want to help instill into not only the studio's culture, but the literature culture entirely. Success is so much more than just making money. Yeah, I feel like a, a big aspect of that, at least that I've definitely come to terms with is, you know, it's it's more about the creative process of at least, of course I can only speak for myself, but getting stuff out there, writing the story that you need to write about what you need to talk about, taking a moment to kind of step away from it and, you know, really asking yourself like, all right, 
when is enough enough? I've, I've done all that I can. The story's out there. Like just be, you know, and, and what honestly keeps me going with that too, is, you know, it's just the idea of being satisfied with, you know, you've, you've done the best that you can. There's nothing else you could really do about it. Like, you know, it's, it's writing for the sake of writing, I guess, in, in my opinion, a lot more than, you know, writing for the sake of dollars or something mm-hmm. like that. Oh yeah. And not saying anything out there to um, be mean or offensive or anything like that. But when I read a book, I can tell whether that author is writing for the money or if that author is writing just because they enjoy the writing and they're that, you know, they love their story. You can tell. And I mean, that's one thing I look at when I read. So, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So Matthew, Oh, go ahead, Wyatt. Well, I was just going to say that I think that um, that realization that you're talking about, Matthew, of just an appreciation for the creative process, um, that is a realization that everybody in the everybody in the arts has to uh, has to realize, um, especially in today's like economy in today's uh, like financial systems. It really does come down to like appreciate you you appreciate the creative process um, as a but um, definitely as a kid um, lo- like loving the creative process uh, you have it's a realization that you kind of have to grow up into like for me I had that realization where I was like. Um, you know, I'm doing everything that I can, uh, not to be, not to be broke. <laughs> and, and I, I'm still broke. Like I'm, I'm kind of still there, you know, like I still, I still live in an apartment and that, I mean, that doesn't seem to be changing anytime. So, um, and, and that moment was like six years ago, roughly about six years ago for me, where I had this moment where I'm like, I'm doing everything I can not to be broke. I'm still broke. Um, so I might as well do what I want to. I might as well do right and, and say to hell with the rest. Cause it's like, that's such an important realization that everybody kind of, it's like a ringer. It's a, it's a test, a gauntlet of your uh, commitment and your passion for your art form is is getting to the point where you say i'm committed to this um whether whether it does make me money or not that's that's kind of like what i get from the whole it's not about the money thing because sometimes that sounds a little bit cliche but it only sounds yeah. cliche to people who haven't been through it <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it yeah cliche to people who who haven't been through that gauntlet and come oh i mean i'm system. guilty Right here on that one, man. Back when I was in college, before I really got into writing, like a lot, you know, I was always a reader, but before I got into writing, I'd sit back and, you know, I had some friends that was starting to get in on the early, like, KDP publishing train and stuff. And they're like, man, you can't do this for the money. I'm like, what do you mean? Everyone does it for the money. Come on. And um, 
you know, after writing, after having gone through the publishing process and, you know, knowing what I know with the industry and stuff, I have definitely become humbled. So, um, Matthew. Yes. I got another question for you, man. Go ahead. So, do you have a weird, like, writer's quirk that you have? Hmm. I I'm not sure. I'm I mean there probably is one, but I don't think at this point I am aware enough to be able to really pinpoint or put a finger on it. Yeah. Yeah, cuz I mean, I at least with the way that my life's been recently, I'm so busy that it's gotten to the point of where I write at night, in the morning, uh, sometimes when I'm at work and I literally have like five minutes and I'm like, all right, open up Google Docs. Here I go. Oh, yeah, I definitely write at work. <laughs> I definitely write at work. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I would just say the uh, main thing really is uh, I definitely have to be heavily caffeinated at, at all points of when I'm really, you know, hammering down on the... Uh, the keyboard or putting pen to paper. I think one quirk, like an example of a quirk that I have is um, I have a tendency to kind of need uh, mood music. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, When I'm writing uh, like, like the entire time I was writing the honeysuckle horror, um, I was looking up on YouTube, like, uh, Lovecraft music for writing, uh-huh. gothic music for writing, that kind of thing. And like, just like, I don't know what there is about it, but it's just like, I kind of have to have like a song for a scene. And like, I'm just listening to this long four hour long playlist of <laughs> mute mood music that matches the tone. Like at the early stages of honeysuckle horror, it's kind of like, a little bit more light and um, like positive setting up for the the turn uh, around the halfway point. And uh, during those light lighter moments, I was listening to happy music because I, I couldn't listen to the freaky music <laughs> while I was writing the happy stuff. Dude. I have to listen to the freaky stuff while I'm writing freaky stuff and happy stuff while I'm writing happy stuff. Uh, that, I don't know what that is, but it's just like a, <laughs> it's just like a thing that I have to do sometimes. <laughs> that reminds me of a game that came out. Um, most of y'all, if y'all are gamers, you know this is Valheim. And when you start out, you know you're in this nice, peaceful meadows area for hours, dude. The music's real peaceful, melodic, and then suddenly when you go. To and summon the first boss, it turns into like, you know, Norse death metal instrumental, you know, just all of a sudden. And I, I don't know, that just made me think of that, Wyatt. But I do the same thing, man. When I was um, writing Heroin Hospitality, I had to have like <clears throat> weird, like otherworldly instrumental music going on for some of the scenes for me to really encapsulate the mood I was trying to write. So 
I, I definitely feel you there. Yeah, I, I definitely feel that I've I've def well I've also uh, kind of really depending. A lot of times I'll sit and I'll uh, YouTube up some uh, jazz music or like slow jazz or sometimes they call it like cafe jazz music. Oh, oh dude, the like the live YouTube. Yes, like yes, yes. Cafe, dude, I love those. I listen to those every night. Um. Let me ask I, I, you this. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, actually, now, now that I've taken a little bit more time to reflect on it, a weird thing that I definitely have noticed is, for whatever reason, when I do the majority of my writing, I like to be wearing shoes. That's really interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure why, but I, for whatever reason, I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm in writer mode. I'm going to put my shoes on. Maybe, maybe physically I'm preparing myself to mentally go for a walk. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, since you told me yours, I'll tell you mine. So when I'm like here in my like home office doing my writing and stuff, I have an authentic, well, not, you know, I have a carbon steel katana here that I got a few years back. And I have it like sitting next to me. And Sometimes I'll unsheath the katana, put the katana part up like the blade, but I'll have the sheath and I'll kind of twirl it while I'm brainstorming, you know, and I always do that when I write, like when I sit down for a couple hours. I feel like that's definitely a thing for me. Uh, like if I'm, Writing like for D for a D and D session, if I'm taking notes for like a D and D session or something, or writing even like writing fantasy to a certain degree, like I I love to be um, in a setting that like kind of sends me into it. I, it really kind of brings to mind. I don't know if you guys like what. Okay, <laughs> this is about to go into left field. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, everybody prepare yourself. Okay. <laughs> All right. We, on Netflix, there's a whole bunch of documentaries about drugs. Um, <laughs> particularly, particularly like shrooms and ayahuasca and acid and stuff like that. Um, and I'm quite fascinated with it, to be perfectly honest with you. Like if I was a celebrity, I would definitely be taking some of my bukus of money and doing some of that. <laughs> uh huh. But. Uh, um, one of the things that like is a big staple in the medical field of actually like researching hallucinogenics and stuff um, is set and setting. Like it's so important to have um, a mindset going into an experience and a, the setting around you fit that mindset. So if you're like going into an, if you're, if you're about to, um, take acid and you have you you have a mindset where you're like i am doing this to um quit smoking and um you go in there with that mindset like i am going on this trip to figure out a way or fix my mind with regards to smoking cigarettes and then you have people around you or you have a, a setting up uh, a room a space 
that is safe and, and that is supportive of your set, supportive of your goals. And like, what is writing if not a self-induced hallucinogenic trip? Like, uh, you know, like yeah. when you sit down to write and you allow your imagination to, to run, um, it's meditative and, and it, it's, it's hallucinogenic in like a non-hardcore way. Um, and set and setting for writers is really, is a really important thing too. Like you go into a story, like I am going to write a fight scene or I am going to write a horror novelette. And you, you sit down to write that. And a lot of times, um, people will do it instinctively and create a setting like Mm -hmm. orient to the world around you to the world that you're about to transport yourself to you know i'm going to take us on a field trip more into the left field here wyatt um i have a friend who lives in colorado he frequents psilocybin quite a bit you know <laughs> and um you know magic mushrooms and all but he's a writer he doesn't have anything published he just does it for the hell of it you know and he only does his writing when he's on a trip you know he he like well he <clears throat> writes afterwards but he does his brainstorming while he's on a trip man you talk about some heavy world building. I was with him once while he was tripping and, um, you know, just being a supportive friend, making sure he's in a good environment. Cause that can ruin the trip if you're not. And he's there. He's like, I'm in the kingdom of Ashwa. And I'm like, the, the what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, Transport me to the orb of Nas Shaheen. And he, he's just coming up with all these names and stuff. And when he's coming down from his high, um, we talk about it. And he says that makes it better for him as right. And disclaimer, I am in no way encouraging any of you all to do drugs or magic mushrooms. But um the world building he does is so bizarre. Like I, I have almost begged him to publish some of his stuff because of how unique it is. But that just goes to what you were saying, why, you know, being in that set and being in that mood and with shrooms, you know, that really opens the mind to just how far into that set and you can take yourself, you know, like you're already going to go there anyways. Like as, as writers, we're already going to go deeper into our imagination and our subconscious. But right. the, the best way to put it, shroom, psilocybin, whatever that, that is really just open, like cleaning the road, so to speak, letting you get past like all of the inhibitions and get to the creative side of yourself. Well, the the way the way he always described it was when you so the difference would be like 
sitting down reading Lord of the Rings, right? Compared to being Frodo, being there with them at Mount Doom, you know, <laughs> that's the difference. And I, I don't know. It, it's so unique what people do with their own art and how they reach certain aspects of their world building and stuff to get to where they are. Um, Matthew, yeah, I have a question again. Now, this is probably a really important question here. Um, if you don't answer it right, you're fired. Um, <laughs> what's your favorite color? Oh, god, um, that's tough. I mean, growing up. For the longest time, red was my favorite color. Now, I'd kind of say I've ventured more into, like, neutral blues and grays, I guess. Yeah, okay, cool, cool. Um, the reason I ask is, it's so interesting to see what people... Oh, say hello to my dogs. Um... <laughs> But it's so interesting to see what writers come up with. Um, I have noticed that a lot of fantasy writers that have like a lot of action in their stories, their favorite colors are warm colors. And a lot of authors who do like horror, thriller, stuff like that, they like cool colors. You know, and hmm. from a psychological standpoint, I've always found that to be a very fascinating thing. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's interesting because growing up, my childhood bedroom up into my early college years was like fire truck, fire engine red, like super bright. Even even like this for whatever reason. Apparently, when I was like. I think around 10 again, I was super adamant even then with my mom that I was like, listen, we're even going to paint the ceiling red. And so I lived in like a red, like a super bright red box. Oh, and man. then, and then out of nowhere, I remember one day she was like, all right, well, you're, you're an adult now. We're going to paint everything like this very neutral, like Navy blue color. And I was just like, all right, we'll see how it goes. And, it, it kind of grew on me. <laughs> well, that's good, man. Uh-huh. That's bad. Like, if you like red runes, uh, you do you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, like a red painted walls and stuff. For some reason, like, it always just made me uh, like I begged my mom for for red, like red accents to my room, like the bright fire truck red, because it always like uh, I was a huge fan of Zoe One Hundred One when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I was a huge Dude, fan of Zoe One Hundred One. I love and Pacific I Coast Academy represent. <laughs> and I was like, I was, I always wanted like bright colors up until like middle school. And then middle school, I uh, I went through my goth phase, um, and that's when I like started begging for like dark colors. I wanted a black room at one point, uh, and my dad was like, "No, 
<laughs> uh, no, no way. You're not having a black room. <laughs> and I was like, Ugh, nobody loves me. Um, <laughs> oh, that's so, so I, I just want to say, I didn't know what a red room was and I just looked it up over here and I'm just going to say, Oh my God. Um, Casey, don't look what? up things that I mentioned in passing. I I was curious. I listen, as writers, our search injury injury. Jesus, what am I saying? The <laughs> red room is already starting to corrupt me. Um, <laughs> my <laughs> no, you just need to stop. <laughs> oh, no. Not after that. Oh, um, sweet Jesus. Oh gosh. But we all know as writers our search history is gonna be screwed. Um, I mean, one of our authors, Erica, we always joke if the FBI ever looks at her computer, they're going to see like how to torture someone, how, how long does it take for a body to decompose? I'm like, Oh my God, Erica, what are you writing over there? (laughs) Well, that's, that reminds me of, I was watching a, uh, Stephen King interview one time about essentially he wanted to write a short story about a guy who was an anesthesiologist who gets, I guess, into like some kind of, I think, drug smuggling or something along the lines of that. Uh huh. And he gets stranded on an island, essentially with nothing but a bunch of heroin. And I guess he went over to his neighbor who was a doctor and he was just like, so, you know, just asking here, if you were to theoretically like do a bunch of drugs and slowly start to cut off parts of yourself to eat, to sustain yourself. How long do you think you could stay alive? (laughs) What is, uh, what, what did he say? Well, essentially he was just like, after, you know, it it took, I guess a lot of very heavy convincing to prove to him that he's like, no, listen, it's just for a story. Like, don't, don't worry about it. (laughs) Wow, that's crazy. Um, (laughs) Jesus. um, We're up here uh, in the 41-minute mark, looks like. Um, And I was just going to, before we kind of close out, I did want to talk a little bit about your book, Matthew. Um, Yeah. And uh, I read a little bit of it. Uh, I didn't read the whole thing, but... I would like to like I concur with kind of what was said earlier, where it to me it really had um, it it vibes Stephen King's it vibes um, kids on bikes eighties. Uh, um, but after talking with you about after kind of listening to you talk about like your hometown and stuff like that, um, that's like that's super interesting how you have taken um like these elements from horror that we're all kind of that we're all kind of familiar with a little bit or a lot of people are kind of familiar with a little bit with the Stephen King's the kids on bikes um today people might recognize stranger things a little bit more um since it's it's an homage to that old school horror um but I like how um, you kind of pulled on that 90s 
a little bit, a little bit more of like the nineties and a little bit more of like, um, you, you know, you, you skipped up a little bit of a decade and experiment a little bit with, um, what kind of effects that would have, um, especially since it's like a kid, you know, a kidnapper, uh, operating, you're playing on some of those, um, fears that were big at the time. They're kind of, they're big now. Um, yeah, but definitely like I remember in the nineties and the early two thousands, like, um, kidnapping was like a, a huge, uh, fear. And just to see you play around with that, uh, is super interesting that, old school formula with a new concept. Would you say that's accurate to your process? Yeah, no, I I definitely would also thank you for those kind words, but um, yeah, I mean, really, I kind of, cause I'm, I'm definitely a bigger fan of more similar to like the eighties type horror And at the same time, too, I kind of wanted to, like you were saying, do something on my own. So, I mean, growing up as a kid of the 90s, I figured, you know, if I were to be alive during the time that something like this happened, it would have been in the 90s. And, you know, just kind of walking back down, you know, memory lane and remembering things and ideas and such. And kind of like what you said, you know, kidnapping was a big thing around then and I also remember for a while too, like national news wise, there's always the like red alert alarm of like Satanism and witchcraft and stuff is going crazy in the youth of, you know, the country and whatnot, you know, despite all the evidence to the contrary. And, you know, I, uh, I I really, at least for my own writing, I tend to try to stick with things that are very experiential. And so I, I definitely wanted to kind of just, you know, go off of what I know and more or less, that's, uh, that's kind of how I came up with the story in the first place. It's a combination of aspects from when I was younger to aspects from now as an adult. I can definitely see the experiential side of things because, um, you can really tell when, uh, someone's dealing with a setting that they're not familiar with or that they, that even like in fiction, when you're talking about like a fictional setting, um, you can really tell when um, people are working with a setting that they're not connecting to. And in contemporary art um, or realistic fiction, that can be a difficult thing too, uh, connecting to a time period that you don't, uh, relate to very well. I'm working on a Bronze Age fantasy right now, and the one of the main things that I've been working on is just heavily researching um, everything, trying to from the politics to the technology to the landscape, because it's so difficult to put your mind in a place so alien to us now. Um, it's it's even easier to put your mind in a medieval context than it is to think about what the world looked like during the Bronze Age. And to relate that to your book, it's like I can feel when I, whenever I was reading that um, this is a setting that you connect to. This is like this town um, you're you're drawing on uh, imagery that 
you're deeply familiar with. And that's, that's really, that goes a long way um, to making a reader feel um, immersed in a world um, where they feel like both them and the narrator are, are clued in to the, the environment that you're trying to transport them to. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that Wolenlark is, for the most part, a slightly more ominous shadow of the hometown that I definitely went through my formative years in. You know, it's the small town America where anything that you want is realistically only a short bike ride away. And, you know, most of the people who are aware of where you live just pass through. Not a lot of people stop and stay. So I guess kind of the, uh, I don't know, a combination of both the fleeting aspect of before the town became very urbanized, grown up and developed as well as I guess the fleeting aspect of your childhood years that you might not be fully aware of yet. I guess I kind of found some confluence in that and really sort of use that to drive both the narrative and the setting, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super interesting. Uh, yeah. That, that narrative connection between uh, a kid growing up and urban sprawl. That's super interesting. There's a lot uh, to play around with just in that concept. Um, So like just, you could just take that concept and write a dozen stories, different stories, everyone completely different, but uh, the exact same concept and everything just feel, uh, yeah, incredible. One thing I really enjoyed about your book, Matthew, was it touches on the subtle horror of the 1990s suburbia environment as well. Um, There's a lot of attention to, you know, detail and you kind of show the reader this depiction of a pseudo perfect, you know, suburban area. Right. And people don't talk about the bad things. Right. Well, why there's a, there's a reason for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but the idea that these families just sit back and watch as everything happens, happens through it. it, It's just mind blowing, man. It, It really takes me back to when I was growing up and I just got, an overwhelming almost sense of nostalgia, which is a good thing um, reading it because the, the nineties, I hell I grew up in the nineties. It, it was a scary time for a lot of families because not only did you have kidnappings, but you had serial killers, you had kids going missing and you did a really good job working with that. And I'm really excited to see, um, you know, what else you write so oh well yeah thank you thank you i uh i definitely am at least now in the process of kicking around potentially maybe something that might either be not a direct sequel or at least maybe a revisiting of the town we we shall see i like it 
I got one more question and then we can we can close up for the night. What brought you to coalescence? I know I asked you that when I first interviewed you many moons ago, but I'm curious, like how did you hear about us? So I uh I definitely heard about you guys through the uh Twitterverse more or less. And I just looking around and essentially at the point where I ended up falling into your guys's uh, publishing company was I was sitting on maybe like four or five completed works, at least to the point of where they were entirely fleshed out and written. I, obviously everything still needs a lot of editing, but I told myself, you know, I got to find some way to put this out. And I didn't want to just keep going the route that I had been of doing the self publishing and all that kind of stuff. I wanted to, you know, I guess a part of it too was also proving to myself that I could find somebody out there willing to take a chance on what I was doing. And, you know, just, uh, just so happened to be that, you know, I, I think maybe a week or two later, I stumbled upon the uh, Coalescence Publishing Twitter page, went through reading it as well as, you know, checking out the website. And it, it definitely resonated with me, especially the whole, you know, creative, at least on the website, when it said the whole create and thrive kind of idea that was on the main web page that resonated with me. And I, I liked what I read in the description and it, you know, it, it seemed like a solid, legitimate company as opposed to there are definitely a lot of, uh, not to name names, but there are definitely, you know, some certain publishing entities out there that operate under the guise of either a hybrid or a traditional company, but definitely do business as more of a boutique or vanity type press. Oh yeah. You know, that's, um, when we were developing, you know, the initial business plan for coalescence, um, that was a question that was brought up very early on was, do we charge to publish? And we immediately just unanimously said no, because if we're going to sit here and sorry, but I'm going to be a little, you know, blunt with this. If we're going to sit here and have the balls to charge authors money to publish their own works that they has spent their time on and have, you know, and have us make money off of their stuff. That's, that's so shitty, man. I, yeah, there is, it, it's, it strikes me as being rather predatory. <laughs> it, it is. And, you know, I try not to pick fights with other studios, you know, and for studios out there that do what we do or, you know, do right by their authors, kudos to you all. But if you're a vanity publisher, we will have nothing to do with you at all. You can, you know, send your authors to us, you know, but <laughs> I, I, I despise them so much, man. Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely something I learned very, very early on, you know, when you send out manuscripts and stuff and you get responses like, Oh, that's great. You know, Just, uh, you know, we're going to need like $2,000 and it's like, Whoa, 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 wait, 
Why do you need, why do you need this money? You know, there's a guy, um, I'm not going to name his name because he got mad at us on Twitter, which we don't hold it against him, you know, but he reached out to us a few weeks ago and said, Hey, I see you guys are a publishing studio. I have this story I've worked on for five years. I recently published it, but I want to republish it through you guys because I like what you guys are about. And I'm like, okay, cool. What, you know, send me a draft. I'll read it. I read it. You know, it needed some very heavy, heavy editing, you know, like I looked at it and at first I was like, he, he must've sent me just the raw manuscript. This hasn't been edited or formatted yet. He must not have sent me the one that was published. Yeah. So I asked him, I'm like, Hey, um, did you send me the unedited version or the edited one? He said, well, I sent you the version that my old publisher edited for me. And I was like, Oh man. (laughs) And I wasn't mean to the guy, but I told him, I'm like, well, this, this definitely needs, well, before I told him that I asked him some questions about his publisher and he's like, yeah, I dropped like $3,000 down on this publishing company. They told me they were going to market for me and edit my book. And dude, the formatting was awful. The editing was awful. And I'm not saying anything about the author. You know, you can be a great author and not, you know, be able to properly edit or format your book. That's a whole other avenue. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the author himself, you know, great story, great story continuity. You know, the story has great potential but i told him i'm like we would be interested in this um we would like to edit and format this correctly though because your publisher has done an awful job editing it and for you to pay or for you to have paid them three thousand dollars they took advantage of you and i I was honest with them you know i'm i'm gonna be transparent with people and he didn't like that. He said we, as a studio, um, shouldn't be so harsh, which, you know, I'm sure I'm, you know, looking back on it, I'm sure the guy was, you know, upset because he spent $3,000. He came to yeah. the understanding that it wasn't edited like it needed to be. And, um, you know, Hey dude, if you're listening in, um, hit us up, you know, I'm, I'm just saying no hard feelings on our side. Like we get it, but you know, it's stuff like that, man. And that really pisses me off with vanity publishers. I honestly think they should be illegal. Um, again, I know we said no politics, but, um, <laughs> No, no, I agree. I mean, it's it, it's very, I don't know, disheartening that there are even people out there that entertain the idea of trying to finagle money from people in regards to their own artistic, you know, well, endeavors. What it is, man, is you have a lot of authors out there that want to be successful. They want to be published. And there's 
there is a difference between being self-published and being published through a studio or company. You know, you do get that extra like flair to it, you know, and if you do it right, there's a lot of support out there that you wouldn't get with self-publishing. Like, yeah. like you've noticed. Yeah, and, well, absolutely. And because there's so many authors out there that's so desperate to get their book out there to be able to say, I publish through a studio or a company. You have people that are despicable coming in and they're not editing their books. They're taking their damn money and they're running with it. And that's why it's as rampant as it is. So. Yeah. We should do a vanity publisher awareness um, seminar <laughs> at one of the cons we go to. I, I would be all on board for that. What about you, What The panel that we did with Chris and Metrotham Con kind of address that to a little oh, yeah. of, a, of an extent. But yeah, I mean, like, um, definitely Nick, I, being on panels was, was a whole lot of fun, and I would be willing to do them all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, at any rate, I think we're probably out of time now. Yeah, uh, we're we're past our hour, but um, I will say this, Matthew. It, it was great sitting down talking with you tonight, man. Um, for all all of our listeners, we're gonna look for a July release of What Sleeps in Walden Lark. That way, you can find out what sleeps in Walden Lark. Because I'm gonna tell you, it's gonna split you in half. We'll just leave it at that. Um, well put. Well put. Yep. Mm-hmm. And just be on the lookout for pre-orders and all that fun jazz. And be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. We love having you guys listen in. Um, Matthew White, y'all got anything else? Uh, no, just uh, thanks. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Uh, one thing for our regular viewers. Uh, oh, snap. <laughs> um. <laughs> I have been wondering if you guys would like um, to see a little bit more um, small videos. Um, I do have a, a, a blog over on the Coalescence uh, publishing website. Uh, that That's just me um, sharing thoughts, doing reviews, stuff like that. And so comment below if you'd be interested in seeing some uh, shorter videos that essentially kind of amount to blogs uh, that either I or Casey do just like on an individual basis. Um, another thing is, uh, will I was wondering if we could probably do some um, some polls. Uh, to maybe figure out what you guys are interested in. So just comment below uh, what sorts of things you'd be interested in seeing besides our author interviews and besides our regular uh, long form content. And uh, just, yeah, let us know, comment below. Um, and uh, check us out on social media too. Don't forget to uh, go check out Coalescence Publishing on 
Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, and I also have an uh, author account at uh, author underscore WM Sutherland. That's on Instagram. Uh, Matthew, do you have any social media authors, social medias you would want them to yeah, point? Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, on Twitter, you can find me at author Salinas. That's S-A-L-I-N-A-S. And then I also uh, have dabbled with uh, TikTok as well, where I am at author Matthew Salinas. I went a little bit more formal there with my whole name. Oh, <laughs> I'm looking that up right now. Mm-hmm. Well, that uh, that's all I had to say. Well, Matthew, is this you stabbing a book with a katana? Wow. <laughs> but, all right, guys. It was fun. We'll need to get together again soon. Um, everyone out there, if you're a reader, keep on reading. If you're a writer, keep on writing. We'll talk to you next time.